Hello, Texans, and welcome to the program that gets you inside NRG Stadium. Mark Vandermeer and John Harris with you tonight as we will talk with an assistant coach, James Campen, the O-line coach. That's followed by Who's Better, which we play every Tuesday, which is always fun. We'll go around the league as well, but let's start out with the O-line coach, new to the Texans, but not new to the NFL, spent a lot of years with the Packers. In fact, he played for Green Bay, James Campen. And we wanted to know how it's going out there at practice with these guys instructing them getting ready for 2021. Uh, it's going well. It's uh, it sure is nice to see faces and not be on Zoom like last year. And uh, this has been really good. Uh, it's been it's been terrific having the guys here. Coach, what's the focus for you during OTAs? We hear coaches say all the time, head coaches in particular. Well, it's seven on seven. If you're even doing that, you don't have pads on because that's come till training camp. What's your focus? for these guys during OTAs and minicamp at this point? Um, you know, I think it's just, you know, everyone getting a, a strong knowledge of the offense, uh, the conceptual uh, deal and, and understanding the plays and the different schemes that, that defenses will employ on us. And then obviously uh, the fundamental, the fundamental footwork and hand placement, those things uh, are easily accomplished without having pads on. And, and you have to take advantage of those times now with the differences in rule changes and whatnot. And so, um, you know, have to be a little creative, think out of the box and, and create drills and put them in positions uh, to get those fundamental uh, behaviors together. Coach, it strikes me that offensive linemen might not enjoy that as much as actually hitting other human beings. So <laughs> when they get to camp, they're probably a lot more interested. Well, that's probably a bad word, but excited about doing that sort of thing. Yeah, I think uh, – like you said, I think excited is a better better way of, of it's like wow we really get to execute these things these drawings and, and and you know and put things to application. It is a lot more fun for linemen when it gets to that point. Um, but you know, I mean, heck, we're uh, they always said we're mushrooms and just put us in the dark and feed us and we're growing and and so really for linemen, we we anything new is exciting. So. Uh, Coach Two-Parter, are you going to get fined for doing this interview, by the way? Is that still happening in offensive line rooms? Um, you know, I, I I would probably, I would say yes. I think that's kind of a universal thing. I, uh, I'm sure every time uh, we speak or they speak, you get fined, I'm sure. Coach, when you take on a different role, when you come in and you have not maybe seen these guys, maybe seen them on TV at some point when there's a game on, when you're doing work, it's maybe on in the background, but – do you just jump in and watch all 16 games from last year to get a read on everybody? Or do you just kind of leave that in the past because techniques are different, schemes different? Or how do you attack that when you step into that role about getting understanding of what's already here and what you need to get better on that offensive line? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a really good question. I've never been asked that. And, uh, uh, you know, you do watch all the tape. And... Um, I think if you don't watch the tape, you try not to watch the scheme and those things because um, that can change from year to year. But you certainly want to, you know, look at the traits of each lineman, get to know them, um, you know, on film and what they're capable of doing at this time. And then also then you can then, uh, you know, kind of make different drills for individuals. Some not every drill is applicable to everybody. So I think that's important, but I also think it's important to go back and watch all the training camp and the evolution of the player. So uh, for myself, I go all the way back to, you know, their, 
their training camp, watch their drills, what their individual periods look like. So I can see what they've been taught and what their movements are prior to just watching a game day. Offensive line coach James Campen with us on Texans Radio. Coach, I've asked this question of offensive linemen and coaches, but I wanted to get your response. Is this, and if it is so, why is this the closest position group on the team? And why is the closeness important on and off the field with this group? You know, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it's a, it's a really neat dynamic to be a part of a group. Um, you know, as a former player, it's a, it's a, it, it stays with you forever. It doesn't really matter what, uh, you know, when you retire from football, then you know, you know, linemen, you're, oh, he played offensive line. You're, you obviously gravitated, just like it's, a, it's an extended family, if you will. Um, um, but, it, you know, it, I don't know how those dynamics happened. I'm glad that I'm a part of it. It's, it's a neat fraternity to be in. Um, but I'm not so sure where, where it happened. And, I mean, the importance of it is, I think, for any dynamics of a team is, you, you know, you have to lose yourself in order to find yourself in the makeup of a team. And I think that that just gets accelerated in an offensive line room. Um, we spend a lot of time alone in meetings, whereas like um, perimeter, uh, all the perimeter will be in there watching with the quarterbacks and watching route details and things of this nature. We'll have smaller meetings with the tight ends or running backs you know, and blocking and those things. So I, I think maybe sometimes that's just developed in the fact that we're, we are by ourselves frequently. You know, how you know you're talking to an offensive line coach is that they refer to running backs, wide receivers, and quarterbacks, not as skill position, but as perimeter players. I love it, Coach. That's great stuff. <laughs> you okay. got that right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know that. Coach, how did your years as a head high school coach help you become a better professional coach in the future? Uh, tremendous amount of gratitude that I was able to be a head coach at my former high school. And, you know, I love Ponderosa High School, always will. And, you know, I think that, you know, patience, you know, everything isn't just going to come just because someone is drafted higher or as a free agent really doesn't matter. The professional athletes, you know, the expectation is obviously there for them to perform at a high level, but it is too in the high school level as well. But you get to see players that, um, you know, a lot of times freshman or sophomore guy who, who struggles a little bit, all of a sudden he has a growth spurt and all of a sudden now he's a really good player in any position. And you guys, Oh my goodness. Now all of a sudden he's an all league player when you didn't think that he would even be playing the sport. And I think so with patience, uh, that, that helps a lot, I think, in a transition to this level because, um, you know, it's all new. It's new for them. The expectation is extremely high. But when we're asking them to try different things, to do different things, when they've had three or four years of doing it at college and their high school, it can be a little overwhelming at times. So I think patience and understanding is, is a big help at this level. Coach, the first preseason game is at Lambeau Field, where you spent time as a player and a coach. I'm sure it's not your first trip back, and you probably don't have time for any big reunion or anything, but what's that like to go back to Lambeau Field for you? Um, actually, it will be my first time back. And, wow. Um, yes, it will be. So um, it, it's, uh, it's a special place, you know, there. And, uh, you know, I, I, I we'll see how that, that goes. We're going there for a purpose to, to – you know, win every game that you put your pads on, in my opinion, and and perform well and take advancements and steps towards 
you know, the season, it's a preseason game, but it's competitive and you want to win those and, and play well. But um, as far as me personally, I, I, I don't, I think I'd have to answer, answer that question after I, I don't know. It's, mm-hmm. it's going, it's going to be different, obviously coming from a different locker room. Will you, will you ride a bike and did you ride a bike <laughs> when you were a player? Was that around that bike tradition? Yes, I did. I had the same kid for five years. I sure did. Wow. It was oh, that's very, awesome. Yeah, and it was very interesting. My second year back as a coach, which would be their 2005 season. I was there in 2004, yeah, 2005. A young man came up and uh, asked for a picture. And he was sitting and, you know, we'd walk down as coaches and there was a saying, can we take it right here on this sign? I said, sure. And I, so he took the picture and his friend took the picture. Goes, What's the significance of this? And he said, he handed me an eight by 10. It was the kid who rode, I rode his bike and he was, uh, he was, he just started his first year as a grad assistant at uh, Wisconsin Whitewater. And he wanted to get the picture at the same sign all those years back. And then he gave me one and we signed each other's pictures. Very cool. Very neat experience. That's that's really cool. I can imagine Max Sharping has probably bent your ear a little bit, having you know <laughs> lived in Green Bay and been a Packers fan. Oh yes. But, but along those lines, Coach, I think a lot has been been made of your career in Green Bay. And the fact that you didn't have a bunch of, of first round picks. You know, David Bakhtiari. You know, T.J. Lines. You got a, you know players that were a little bit later rounds, but then you grew and developed them and cultivated their talent. What was the key? And what is the key to getting the most out of your guys, whether they're seventh round picks or first round picks, what's the key to cultivating that talent? Well, I think, I think first it's the, it's, you know, it's the environment and and the culture. And I know that that's what we're, we're striving for here is to create that culture, competitiveness, um, you know, consistency, being accountable. And I think, when you have those type of players, it doesn't really matter where they're drafted, to be honest with you, or how you acquire them. I, I think once they, you know, the room has adopted that philosophy, it, it pretty much runs itself, you know, and, and, and I, and I believe we're on the pace for that here um, with the group we have here. And, and so um, all those players that you mentioned are, were very, very good players, um, you know, but they, they had that it factor as far as, they wanted to work. They wanted to get better. Um, you know, you're fl- you got to be flexible. I think with players nowadays, I, I, I don't believe in everything's a cookie cutter sheet to say we're all going to do this drill or that drill. I think you have to be specific once the team is honed down. You know, and right now we do a lot of drills that are that are similar. Um, you know, footwork and basics. You have those basics, but I think you know you have to step out and allow players as long as it's within the structure of the concept of the offense and in the belief mechanisms that coach Cully has for us, if they fit that, then we can take time to say, Hey, look, this works better for you than it might work for this other player. So let's try it. And so I think that, that the fact that they're open to try those things helps all of us. I hate to go retro again, coach, but I have one more on Green Bay, and I just got to know because I okay. think you were there as a player when the Magic Man was at QB, and then Favre comes in. What was that transition period like for you? Uh, it was it, it was uh, it was very sudden and quick, you know. And when Magic got hurt, and then Brett came in, and uh, you know, I was fortunate enough that I, I've had snapped the ball to really good quarterbacks. I mean, he and Brett were excellent quarterbacks and Brett was young, of course. And, uh, those are, those are interesting stories. And 
you wouldn't have enough time on this pot, on this cast to hear all those. And uh, I, I will protect my friend Brett and myself from any stories that no, but we had a lot of fun in those days. We had, we had a lot of fun. Yes. All right. How's the transition to Houston going for you? Uh, very well, in. very well. You know, I, uh, you know, the, the weather's different, obviously you get from extreme cold to extreme heat, but uh <laughs> I was fortunate enough, you know, and I was with the Saints and I played at Tulane that uh, I've had about five years of this stuff and six years. And so um, I don't think you ever get used to extreme cold or extreme heat. You do. You learn to adapt and drink more water. That's probably a good thing. We, we promise not every winter will be like last winter, but the summer is consistent. Good. Coach, th thanks so much for being with us. Uh, nice to see you again. Thank you. And Johnny, I really liked visiting with James Camp in there, a guy who played in the league, a guy who coached a long time. And I, I thought you brought up a really good point about his experience in Green Bay and being able to get the most out of a line and Bakhtiari, what he did with him, what he did with some of the other guys there protecting Aaron Rodgers. That was notable. And now you're hoping that the same level of play or at least improvement from what they were to what they can be with the new personnel can happen here. One of the things that I took out of that, Mark, and and was that Coach Campen understands that you don't coach everybody in the offensive line. Like, I thought it was funny back in, I don't know, March or so, we got a note from, from our PR department saying, look, we're calling position groups like this, quarterbacks, running backs, tight ends, wide receivers, O-line, D-line, linebackers, defensive backs. That's it. That's how we're doing them. So we know full well that in those groups, it's not homogeneous. You don't teach the same things to everybody. There's got to be some sort of individualized concepts that guys within that position group, because you've got guys that are purely center, some guys that can be center guards, some guys that are purely tackle, some guys that can play guard and tackle, some guys that are incredibly athletic, some guys that are a little bit smaller, shorter. The guys are a little bit taller, slower. The guys are a little bit quicker. You have to be able to individualize the instruction for them. And I thought that was one thing that stood out to me because I, I sort of listened for that when I talked to coaches. Because one thing that I took out of, this happened many, many years ago. I went to a clinic. I've told a story. And I listened to a coach who was not a coach at a power five school. He was a coach at a group of five. And he talked about all the different ways that they ran a particular play that they had to be innovative about because they didn't have a five-star athlete. They had a short guard. They had a tall guard. They had a slow one. And they ran it three different ways. The next day, I went to go see a coach who had five-star talent. And he's throwing up video of what they do in practice. And I'm like, coach, why don't I have guys that can do that? Right. We can't do that. And that coach just couldn't adapt he just didn't understand like well what do you mean well i've got a your guy is 6'6 285 <laughs> my guy's 6'1 190 and he's outweighed by 50 pounds so what do you do when that's the case and there was no answer but when i talked to the coach that had to be innovative i got more out of that and so i listened for that sort of thing in which you don't teach them all the same way you can't you teach the certain guys, you know, Larry Tunsil is going to do things different than Titus and Titus is going to do it different than Marcus Cannon. So you give them different techniques and different things to make all of them better. And it's the way I taught math. The way I taught math, Mark, was 
I would go in and say, look, this is the, the best way I think you should do it. But we're going to find the best way. If you don't like that way, let's try something else. Really? I wanted else. you as a math teacher. I never told my never told my kids you had to do it this way. Never. Never. Mm-hmm. I never said that because all kids were different. They're yeah. all different. All offensive linemen are different. And the way that James Campen approaches it is that this guy's different from this guy. I'm going to have to teach those two guys differently, yet give them the same amount of attention to make them get to a level that maybe they didn't think they could get to. To me, that's coaching in a nutshell. It isn't just, okay, great. He mentioned it. Great talent, great coaches, or great coaches uh, are because of great talent. And look, there, there is definitely a, a slice of truth there. But great coaches make good talent great. And that, to me, is what James Campen has done. And he's done a lot of that by understanding that individualization of an offensive line, although it's got to be a tight group, approaching each guy individually is going to help make that line collectively much, much better. That was what I took out of the interview. I, I thought he's fantastic, Mark. I We got done with the interview, and I was Robert Prince came right in after that, so we, you and I didn't get a chance to talk. I loved talking with both guys, actually. But yeah. Campin walked out, and I was like, I love that guy. I, I'd love for him to coach for a long time here because he gets it. He gets what coaching is supposed to be about. It's not about this scheme and that scheme and this and that. It's about getting those guys the tools to make them better at their job so that collectively they're at a they're at a, a rate and a rate of play and a performance that we can all be happy with as Texans fans. And I hope I hope that's what we get because I mean, I don't think he just talks a big game, and he wasn't really even like bragging on himself. No, it was not just at all. the way that he talked about it mm-hmm. and the way that he 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 put it forth. I just loved it so much because that was the way that I looked at how you're supposed to instruct and how you're supposed to teach. Can you believe that he was there when Don Mikowski, yeah, uh, when that era that that torch was passed so quickly to Brett Favre yeah. at Green Bay and. I was surprised. Yeah, he'd never been back to Lambeau and the preseason games coming up. So this is going to be awesome for him to return to Lambeau. And we got a couple of little nuggets there on his bike experience at training (laughs) camp. Uh, So obviously we're going to revisit that when we get closer to training camp because that's an exclusive, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, But the the other thing about the O-line that I find interesting, and this is a conversation for another day, when I got to UMass, the head coach there was Mike Hodges, and he played at Maine like back in the 60s. And Johnny, he couldn't have been more. I don't know what his playing weight was. It couldn't have been more than like 180. I'm I'm serious. Yeah. Now Maine was oh a smaller gosh. school then, yes, but yes. but the old linemen, even at at bigger schools, then they were not that big. They were two two twenty, right? Sixties, fifties. It was a different kind of position, really. I would hesitate to say more athletic because these guys are really good athletes, even though they're 300 pounds ish, but. What about that part of it? The the way the game used to be played versus now. You didn't have as much gap running probably then. You had a little bit more movement up front uh, as far as going side to side, doing some of the zone type stuff. Well, absolutely. And then one other thing about that particular era is you probably had those guys going both ways too. Mm. And, you know, yep. that was part of it. I think, I think one of the things, I don't want to sound like old guy get off the porch, but we, we talk about it now because it's such a big part of the trenches. And that is, is, is your hands. 
-hmm. the ability in the the way you know the NFL allowing offensive linemen to use their hands you know starting in 1978 you know we talk all about the Mel Blunt rule and open a passing game but it also allowed offensive linemen to use their hands as opposed to keeping their hands in by their chest and kind of blocking with chicken wings they could use their hands and do some things I think that changed techniques Mm. for offensive linemen Mm. going forward and for better or worse. I mean, I think there have been some good parts about it. I think there have been some some bad parts. I think there are some guys that can get kind of lazy because they've got big, strong hands and they can control guys doing that way. Whereas back, like you were saying, when guys were lighter, but they had to do it with their footwork, they had to do it with their quickness, um, and they had to do you know a few different things to be successful uh, up front. But man, you talk about an athletic group, and it's funny, <laughs> I pointed out, because I do this too, I caught myself one time saying this because I used to, when I was the head coach, I would coach the offensive line. And I remember talking about the skill players and I looked over at one of my players and he had played for me in junior high and he had been with me for three years. This kid had been around me forever. And he kind of looked, he knew he could do this. He kind of looked at me and he had this look and I was like, what? And he goes, why are they skill players and we're not? And I was like, I was like, what do you want me to call him? He goes, call them outside guys or something else. So <laughs> I've, ta- I've taken to call them perimeter guys because yep. the guys inside are just as skilled. They're just bigger and do different things. So I thought it was so funny when he brought that up. And he, I think he loved the fact that I caught that because mm-hmm. he said perimeter players. I was like, <laughs> yes, but I really look forward to what he's able to do. Mark, I think, and I, I listened to a little bit of the presser later on, I think it's going to be really interesting what that five is going to be up front. Yeah. How it's situated. You, you think there might be a couple of surprises there, even with health? Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know about personnel. Mm-hmm. Like, it might be the five guys we're thinking of. Right. But they just meet, they might be configured differently. Okay. So I'm very, very curious to see how that plays out. And, of course, you say, you say this a lot and you're dead on. Sometimes injuries, yep. sometimes certain sure. situations kind of play themselves out mm-hmm. and, you know, you're sort of kind of forced into a particular situation because of how all that stuff goes. But if all things, you know, all guys stay relatively healthy, it's going to be really interesting to watch that offensive line group. It's got more depth than, than I can remember. But how they're going to put it together, they're either going to be – some free agents that have got some pelts up on the wall because they've played a lot in the league or some early round draft picks that are either a not going to find themselves in that top five Mm -hmm. or in some cases, because they aren't in that top five, they may be in, you know, fighting for a roster spot at that point. So it's going to be really interesting to watch that group come together during training camp. And I I can't wait to see it all happen. It's going to be really interesting, but I love the fact that James Campen is this team's offense line coach. Love it. Another interesting thing. Look, I know that we have fewer padded practices than ever. They don't have to use them all. It'll be really telling to see Coach Cully as the season goes on, how much padded work they do, how much he thinks they need. Look, we yeah. said it last week with the running backs. You know, you got to know what you have. You know, these are veteran guys, so you don't want to wear them out. You don't want to overuse them, but you got to know who's got the juice to go for 2021, uh, to get you out of the gate fast, that kind of thing. And speaking of that kind of thing, you and I are going to catch up with Philip Lindsay tomorrow. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. All right, coming up, we've got 
the Tuesday night sensation that's sweeping the nation, at least in our minds. It's who's better. And we've got a little position group stuff here. I have vintage quarterback versus current quarterback. I've got head coach stuff and a whole bunch of other things. So stick around. Who's better is coming up on Texans radio. Mark Vandermeer and John Harris with you Tuesday night. We play who's better. Johnny, are you ready? Of course. Let's go. All right. Who's better. Sometimes it's what's better or whatever. We adjust it as we go, but who's better in this way. Who is the better connected in terms of tightness, the tighter position group. We have this debate so often. We brought it up with James Campen. O-line, are they the tightest position group? We kind of agree on that. But is there really a competitor to this? Are the defensive backs maybe as tight as the O-linemen? And is there any other position group that can possibly sneak in here? I know it varies from team to team, but we do have averages, if you will, in the league. So who's better, O-line or D-line in terms of tight position group? I think or DB the, rather. I think the O line is is got to be. Mm-hmm. They all rely on one another. Now it's not to say that defensive backs don't rely on one another, but you think Deion Sanders cared that Darren Woodson was in zone coverage or man, he didn't care because he was going to go lock down his side. Darrell Revis, when he got on the island, you think he cared about what the safeties were doing behind him? No, he locked his dude up. He covered him all over the field, and away you go. Now, if you play. If you play a lot of zone, there is a ton of communication that goes with playing zone. But sometimes that communication is happening with linebackers, not just with defensive backs. So the defensive backs, they love to, and having been one of them, I know how this goes. You talk about, yeah, we're a tight group, we're a tight Nobody compares the offensive line. I mean, the fact that Coach Campen said to us he's getting fined for doing that radio interview um, that that should yeah. tell you something. The the defensive backs, they're more about you know swag and flashy and stuff like that. Offensive alignment don't they're, they're not living that way unless they're a Tennessee Titan, and then it's a whole different ball game. But point being, the defensive backs, they tend to rely on linebackers or they'll go out and live on islands on their own. So mm-hmm. the tightest group out on the field has got to be the offensive line for sure. Well, Art Kehoe, the old O-line coach at the University of Miami, told me it's not like an O-lineman can go be a running back or play linebacker <laughs> or I'm going to play corner or wide yeah. receiver. This is the last house on the left. If you're not hanging on to the team as an O-lineman, you're off the team. There's nowhere else to go. And that sort of keeps them together in itself. I thought that was pretty cool. All right, Johnny, this is a good one. Vintage coach. Are you ready? Oh, Who's boy. better? Joe Gibbs or Bill Parcells? Oh, this is a good one. This is a good one. Parcells, two Super Bowl wins. Gibbs, three with three different quarterbacks, right? Gibbs, horrendous loss in the Super Bowl to the Raiders in the follow-up encore performance when they beat the Dolphins in his first one. So they couldn't win back-to-back with Theismann. Parcells, Sims, Hostetler, two Super Bowl wins, brought the Jets to the AFC Championship game. What, a couple of years after Rich Kotite went 1-15 there? Resurrected the Cowboys, but was unable to take them past the divisional round. Johnny, who's better, vintage coach, Parcells or Gibbs? They are so similar. So similar. I mean, retirements, and then they come back to the game. It's... I mean, winning championships, one was innovative defensively, one was innovative offensively. Mm-hmm. I 
gosh, it's so, it's so incredibly hard to think what – if I had to win one game, just one Ooh. game, I think I would take Parcells. That's I think I would something. take Parcells. Listen, Doug Williams – Joe Gibbs and Mark Rippon. What else did he I, do in this league? I, Doug Williams I know, had done some things. Yeah. But I think in a one game situation, mm-hmm. game plan, chip stack stacked against him. I feel like Parcells would have found a way to gut out a win. Parcells would have been okay winning a game 15 13, like he did in the NFC Championship game. Yeah. Parcells was the one who came up with the fake punt in that 1990 NFC championship when they needed to steal a possession. He, there was a, and, and that's it. Gibbs didn't coach to win, but Parcells was going to do anything it took to win that particular type of game. Gibbs, it kind of felt like there was a formula to how the Redskins were going to win games. The artist formerly known as the Redskins. So I'm going to say Parcells, but it is so cool. I thought you were going to say Bill Walsh. And I was, I was even like, whoa, that makes it even harder. I think the funniest thing about watching a lot of documentaries is how the coaches in the NFC East, Gibbs and Parcells in particular, didn't like hearing a lot of what was going on out in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. They did not like to hear how great the 49ers were, how great Walsh was. I don't want to call it envy. But, man, they did not like to hear uh, the king, as they called him, Bill Walsh, receiving all the pub that he did. I think in a one-game situation, I'm taking Parcells. I think over the course of a year, if I've got to spend all that time with the guy, I think I would take Joe Gibbs level-headedness for an entire year. Parcells for an entire year would be very tough to deal with. I think Gibbs just as tough, but I think – Parcells would be a very would be tougher from that standpoint. So to win one game, Parcells, I don't think to me is any question. But over the course of a season, I think I would want Gibbs on my side. All right, Johnny, who makes a better head coach, an offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator? Now, Gibbs was an offensive guy. Parcells, a defensive guy. Obviously, yeah. Parcells could eventually coach anything. Same with Belichick, who was a defensive guy, right? right. But I'm I'm kind of stacking it here because we sometimes assume offense, baby, you know, you need offense. You gotta, you gotta win with offense this league. Well, the greatest coach of all time might be Belichick who is a defensive guy. Now Lombardi was an offensive guy, right? But he's Lombardi. uh, And it was a long time ago. So Parcells defensive guy, Pete Carroll defensive guy. So you weigh in on this, please. Here's the easy answer. (laughs) the the coordinator that has spent years on the other side of the ball now you don't Mm. find a lot of those guys you don't find a lot of guys that spent five years coaching offense and then at some point they get moved around and they go coach defense uh and then they learn that way but i'm telling you right now to know it's funny because you know i talked about this i listened to the uh i think it was robert sala who talked about this. I think Sean McVay talked about this. And he said they were asked about advice for young coaches. And I think it was McVay who said on the podcast, if you want to learn about offensive football, go coach defense for a year or two and vice versa, because you start learning about what 
teams are scared of. And I also heard, I heard this on a podcast by a high school coach. His name is Coach Vast. And he was talking about the same thing. He said, I was a defensive coach trying to figure out, you know, how to stop a particular offense. So I went and got their playbook. And when I went and got their playbook and looked at it, they had a special section for things that they had to do if they saw a particular defense. And so it's like the more you know about that other side of the ball, i.e. if you've coached on that side of the ball, you know what you're looking for. So in my career, I started to coach defense. I played defense in college. I coached defense. And then when I took the head coaching job, I went to call in plays. Well, I knew what the defense was going to do. I knew on an option play, I knew who had what, how they were going to do it. So we would block it a particular way because I had that experience. To me, the best head coach is a coordinator who has spent time on the other side of the ball because at that point, when you have that understanding of what that other unit is doing and vice versa, you can end up being, I think, a whale of a head coach down the road, especially if you're going to be one that calls plays. That it, it, some, some guys are just like Kyle Shanahan. They just learn offense, and they just they go at it. They just understand it, and they're going to end up being great calling plays. The majority of guys that end up being really good, I think, have a thorough knowledge of both sides of the ball. And if you spent time on one side, but then you coordinate on the other, I think it makes you that much better down the road. Shanahan won winning season out of four years, not that I'm counting, and we'll see how that goes for him. Mm-hmm. Now D'Amico is the uh, defensive coordinator in San Francisco, so we'll be monitoring his progress there. Geez, this might bleed into the next segment, but let me try it okay. anyway. Vintage okay. quarterback, Johnny, versus a current quarterback who might be a vintage quarterback sooner rather than later. That would be Aaron Rodgers. Who's better, Johnny? Aaron Rodgers or John Elway? Aaron Rodgers or John Elway. I'm not going to just count Super Bowls here, although I could. But I'm also going to think about, you know, who's actually better at playing the position, the mechanics of it. You can't throw out numbers that much because the eras have changed. The rules have changed. We know if you look at Elway's numbers, it's like, all right, whatever. But we all saw him play and saw what he did on a football field. Who's better? Aaron Rodgers is the best thrower of the football I've ever seen. And I know that's not what playing quarterback is really all about, but I just feel like from a, from a quarterback standpoint, I mean, Elway to me was the guy with the 98, 99, you know, Elway was, was Randy Johnson. Mm. And, you know, it took Randy Johnson a little while to kind of corral all the skills uh, to be, you know, the big unit, what he, what he turned into. It took him a little while to do that. I think Elway, it took a little while to do that. Once Aaron Rodgers got on the field in 2008, you saw it right away. And he had every pitch in the arsenal. He could throw two seam, four seam, five. He had everything in the arsenal you were looking for. And it didn't take that long for him to get up uh, to, you know, to top speed, if you will. To me, Aaron Rodgers. Now, I didn't see Elway. I'm trying to think if I did. I don't remember ever seeing Elway live. But of the quarterbacks, and we've seen them all, of the quarterbacks that I've seen throw the ball live, Aaron Rodgers is the best I've ever seen. I, I remember standing down by the goal line at practice when we were in Green Bay, and he threw a wheel route to Dan Vitale, the fullback. And I'm, I'm kind of seeing things develop, and I see Rodgers throw the ball, and I'm telling you, right, that thing's coming right at me. And I'm like, why is he throwing this to me? <laughs> and I watched Vitale run and lo- just run right under it and catch it for a touchdown. 
And I'm like, wow, how did he, how did he see that? Yeah. And it was interesting on the podcast, listening to LaFleur talk about Aaron Rodgers and what he sees and what he knows and what he can do, but physically throwing the football to me, mm. nobody has done it like Aaron Rodgers. Nobody. Okay. I mean, Elway's accomplished more with five Super Bowl appearances and two wins. It's not all about that. The two wins were heavily run oriented teams and all of that. I think getting to those first three gets overlooked sometimes when you evaluate yes. him as a quarterback, but I know it's not just about that. And I think a lot of people agree with you. All right. Next up around the league, we go plus got away on a couple of behind the blue lot things, including the big fight <laughs> and <laughs> what went down uh, at the Memorial this past weekend. It's Texans radio. Great to have you listening tonight. Mark Vanderbilt, John Harris with you. All right. Packers have mini camp, but Rogers not there. I know it's a big story. The media has got to put it out. There's a big story. No one is surprised, right, Johnny? You're not surprised. I, I wasn't surprised. I didn't expect him to show up. I, I would hope at some point, and I know that they've flown out to Hawaii or wherever he is, and they've tried to meet with him, sit with him mm -hmm. and try and work this out. I, I don't, I don't know how it's going to get worked out. Maybe they'll give it one more shot. Uh, but I, I don't know, Mark. This is, I mean, obviously we've got our own situation here. Yeah, yeah. That's got to take, you know, so, you know, the whole, you know, stones and glass houses, all that kind of stuff. I, you know, I don't want to get into, but I just don't know how you fix it. I, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I do, but I don't think it's going to be something that's amenable to the Packers to be able to fix it. So somebody is going to have to yield. And I, I don't see Aaron Rodgers. I mean, I don't see that happening at all. And I don't know at this point if they're, if the Packers are going to be the one that yields and say, yeah, okay, we'll trade you. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't, I just don't know where this one goes, but I would love to see him get back in camp. I think it's, it's Packer football is way more fun when Aaron Rodgers is around, but I just don't know how they fix this one, Mark. I really don't. You know why the NFL is so concerned about trying to get the game better all the time, more marketable, changing it up just a little bit here and there. I know some of the purists don't like some of the changes, but they always want to get better. Uh, it's staring you right in the face when you look at what happened Sunday night with boxing. And I'll put that in oh. air quotes. When you have Floyd Mayweather and Logan Paul go at it, it's the biggest fight we've all heard of in a long time. I know we had a year of COVID, but it was big because it draws attention. You have a retired boxer, really. And you have a YouTube guy who's in great shape and all that. And that becomes a marquee event in your sport. This is one of the reasons, because this is a great sport boxing, Johnny. It was a great sport. Now, it might have been 100 years ago, almost, that it was a great sport. It was still great in the 70s with Ali and everything. We had some good fights even in the 80s and 90s, but it's just yeah. died down over the years. And I think a big reason why UFC is so popular is because it's a single entity controlling things. So you have a lot of uniformity and therefore they can market properly and promote properly boxing's all over the place with all these different organizations that handle yeah. it. And, and I think it's just ruined that great sport. I know it's still available. It's still on, it's still out there. You still have a heavyweight champion of the world. No one knows who it is, but you still have it. Yeah. I don't even know who it is at this point. No, who knows? Come on. I have no idea. It but used to be a huge deal <laughs> in the mid, in the mid to late seventies and early eighties. You absolutely knew who it was right. uh, onto the 90s. You knew without a shadow of a doubt. You remember mm -hmm. uh, when George Foreman 
knocked out Michael Moore and formed and became the heavyweight champion in the world. I mean, that meant something. What boxing needs is a dynamic Mike Tyson to come back. Now, I'm not talking about what happened in a Indianapolis hotel room, all that kind of nonsense. I'm talking about a guy of that, that panache. Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. what he had, that's what boxing needs. They need a guy like that that just steps in the ring, knocks dudes out, his, his bouts go viral, everybody, mm -hmm. it's must-see, yep. and he grows to that stature. That's what boxing needs. They need just one. They just one guy like that. Not a YouTuber, not retired boxers. They need a young dude, heavyweight, that just knocks fools out. Because then you just get to a point where somebody's sitting there going, hey, wait a second. I want to take that guy on. I want to build up and I want to fight that guy. And all of a sudden, maybe there's a rivalry in boxing. Right. You just need one guy to kind of break the seal. And right now, there's not a boxer right now where I go, you know what? I want to see that guy fight. But back in the 80s and 90s, anybody in the welterweight division, anybody in the heavyweight division, I didn't miss those fights ever, ever. Now, I couldn't care less, really, and that's a sad thing. I mean, Ali on the cover of Time magazine, I don't oh, know how many yeah. times in his life. And, you know, look, yeah. it's, I guess it's unfair to bring up the, the greatest ever. I know that his record isn't the greatest ever, but he was the greatest, I think, in part because of his comebacks. Right. Yeah. Not being able to even participate in the sport for so many years and then coming back in the battles with Frazier and, you know, the wins, the losses, all of it, waiting for Foreman's hand to heal, rumble in the jungle, all of it. Just oh. great stuff. And the sport has changed. One other thing I wanted to hit on was uh, at the Memorial when John Rahm came off the 18th in round three and they told him he tested positive for COVID. Johnny, why aren't they telling him on the course? I mean, this is another thing. Look, I know that it's frustrating, but this league, you test positive, you're you're gone before you can infect yeah. anybody. You get a positive right. test. They would pull you off on first and 10, second and three, whatever, because and it wouldn't come to that. But the point is this. If it's all about safety, why are you letting him stay on the course? He could have signed a glove for a fan. He was fist bumping on 18 after the big, great round. Come yep. on. Get it right, people. I was floored. I was floored. I'm like, they waited all that time for him it, to come off of 18? Yeah, it wasn't that really? long because I guess it was like on the hole itself where they, they claimed they found out. You got to go get him. You got to say, sorry, we're stopping it right now. You can't say, oh, We'll wait till he finishes the round. Why? No way. Why? No He's got to withdraw way. anyway. It doesn't help anybody. If it's all about safety, you got to make your move right there. So, and anyway. why is he not vaccinated? No offense, but I yeah, thought he got his taken. first or something, but he wasn't fully. <sighs> so, I mean, yeah, and that's another thing. I get it. If you don't want the vaccine, you don't want the vaccine, but if you do want it, get it three months ago. Anyway, Johnny, thanks so much for being with us tomorrow. Look forward to Philip Lindsay being on the show. John McClain on Thursday. Have a great night, everyone, and go Texans.